Sorry, I'm just trying to find the passage. You can help me. So Mark chapter 10 is what we're looking for um, on, I found it, page um, 1014. So if you grab a Bible, and um, we are looking at verses 17 to 31. So just while you're looking, um, we are finishing our final um, sermon on the one thing series. I called it the one word series um, at the 9.30 and I was told off by Jago. One thing. So we've been looking each week at one thing that is crucial to the gospel, crucial to life with Jesus. And today the word that we're looking at, see word, is priority. The one thing we're looking at is priority. Um, So I'm going to read it. So verse 17, chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked round and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replies, no one has le- who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I'm just going to quickly pray. Lord, I pray that you would come now, and Father, that you would shine your light on this passage, and that we would leave feeling built up by you, and having seen more of your love for us. Amen. So there are many sayings in our household about money. Um, The latest was coined by my son. Um, We recently had our lodger moved out, and so I have um, decided to venture on the Airbnb train and try and make some money through renting out our house every time we go away on a holiday. Now, what you have to realize is for the last four and a half years, I haven't sorted any piles. We've gone from having babies to toddlers, and I haven't sorted the children's clothes, the children's toys, the babies' things. So I was looking at four and a half years' worth of sorting before the house could be ready for Airbnb. So for the first half of this term, that was basically my life. And the poor children, every time I sorted all of their toys, it looked amazing, but every time they then left a toy out, I'd say to them, 
That doesn't live there. Where's its home? Go and put it in its home. And Raph, who's six, was getting more and more infuriated. And eventually, he just looked at me and said, oh, it's just all about the money, isn't it? The other phrase that you all know well, often when we're looking at the budget, is money, 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 must be funny in a rich man's world. But the other and my favorite was coined by my grandfather. He's a very eccentric man, and uh, he had many, many hobbies, and he was amazing at his hobbies, but they were often very expensive. And one of his main um, sort of values in life, really, was to say this, always live within your means, even if you have to borrow to do so. Money is, whether we like it or not, one of the main themes in life. You cannot avoid it. And, of course, then begs the question of how do you prioritize? Where does money fall in your list of priorities? When you look at someone's priorities, generally you see their values. You see what they think is most important. And this man in this passage, we see what his priorities are. And so I'm going to start just by looking at his priorities. And, and that is the one thing that we're looking at, priority. But joined with that is throughout this, this passage, I think, the theme of surrender. So if you can hold those two words together while I speak. So we're going to whiz through what's going on with this man. If you look at the three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of this man, you basically have your rich young ruler, which is probably what you're most familiar with hearing him as spoken as. He is very wealthy. We know this. It says it in every account. He has lots of money. He would have been seen as someone who was very respected. Wealth was a sign of God's blessing in the Jewish world. He's a ruler, so he's obviously got a place of authority in society. And he seems to be quite a good man. He doesn't seem to be a, a criminal. When you look at the commandments that he does keep, he, he's not a bad man. He doesn't seem to do bad things. He was probably very kind. In fact, in the disciples' eyes, he's your prime candidate for inheriting eternal life. He ticks all of the boxes. And so this man comes to Jesus and he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life or to inherit the kingdom of God? And again, this is not a surprising question for a first century Jew. They were always talking about this. And generally their answer was, keep all of the commandments and then you will inherit the kingdom of God. Now we don't know what this man's motive is, why he's coming to Jesus. Potentially, he's ticked all of the boxes. He's doing really well in life and yet he still feels that there's a gap. So he's coming to Jesus and saying, what more is there that I need to do? But the other option, which I think is probably more likely, is he's potentially a little bit arrogant. He's potentially very confident in his own ability and his own ability to achieve whatever it is he sets his sights on. So I think he's probably coming to Jesus and saying, I'm pretty sure I've ticked all the boxes here. I'm just going to check or I'm going to test Jesus, see what he says. Either way, he comes to Jesus quite confidently. And then he starts the conversation and immediately Jesus takes the lead, and the conversation does not go in the direction that the man was probably hoping for. The first thing Jesus does is call him up on why he's calling Jesus good. For a Jew, you only ever referred to God as good. You never use that term for anyone else. This man is coming to Jesus, seeing him just as a normal teacher, a rabbi. He's not seeing him as good. So Jesus says, hang on a minute. Why are you throwing this term good around? Do you really think that you can achieve being good on your own merit? 
And then he immediately lists some of the commandments. And if you look at it, he only lists six of the commandments. Look at verse 19. All of the commandments that he lists to this man are the external commandments, the commandments that someone else would notice whether or not you were keeping. Now, this man must have known the commandments very well. So you think potentially internally, he's thinking, hang on a minute, why is Jesus only listing six of the commandments? Why would he miss out the first four most important commandments? But interestingly, he doesn't say anything to Jesus about this. He just says, yeah, 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 I've kept those commandments. Almost like he's trying to bluff Jesus, thinking Jesus has forgotten the four most important commandments, but let's not highlight that. And then, of course, Jesus pulls out his trump card. Look at verse 21. He says this, One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Essentially, in these verses, Jesus lists the first four commandments. Love the Lord your God. Have no other gods. Don't make and worship idols. Don't take the name of God in vain. He's basically saying to him, you don't keep these commandments. Actually, money is your God. You love money more than anything else. Money has become your idol and you worship it. Jesus reveals this man's heart. He reveals his true priorities. And he says, you need to leave them behind. You need to leave your love of money behind. And then you can come and follow me. So what we see about this man is that he's got his priorities wrong. Those internal commandments, he's not keeping. He loves money more. He's prioritized it. And yet, when he's asked to leave it, he's so enslaved by his love for money, he's so wedded to his love of money, that he cannot bring himself to leave it. If you look at verse 22, it says that he went away sad, the, the translation sad is actually a poor translation. If you look in the King James, the old King James version, it calls sad, it uses the word grieve. And it actually uses the same word that is used in the Garden of Gethsemane when it talks about how Jesus felt when he's anticipating leaving his father, being separated from his father on the cross. The writer is wanting us to see that this man is so wedded to his love of money that it brings up an incredible sense of grief and agony, something that is unbearable in him when he thinks about having to leave his money. And you might think, well, this is a bit of an extreme case. Like This man's obviously got an extreme problem with money. But actually, I would challenge you, I don't think that it is an extreme case. I think it's actually incredibly representative of how the majority of the world, and probably the majority of us, on some level, view money. We live in Clapham. We live in an area of affluence. There's always someone who has more than us. And regardless of what level of affluence you are at, regardless of how much you have, it is almost impossible not to look above you and see the person who has slightly more and to think that if you had that more, that somehow your life might be better. You might look at this passage and think, I don't love money. I definitely don't think I love money. I actually think I have many values higher than that. 
But then when I look at what those values are, and they're often at the moment directed to my children, I want them to have a happy childhood, I want them to have enough space to play at home, I want them to have a good education, I realize that I do love money because I then look to money in order to enable all of those other values that I have. It doesn't take much digging to realize that on some level, we probably all have a love of money. When I use the word idol, what we're really talking about is when you take something in your life that essentially could be a good thing, it doesn't have to be a bad thing, but then your heart does something with that thing that turns it into an idol. So you look at money and you see it as something that you can trust, something that is going to enable you to meet the needs you have for your children or for yourself. You look to money and you see it as the way of finding security, finding comfort, finding happiness on one level or another. And you twist it into something that it was never meant to be. And of course, the irony is with idols is they're false gods. So they're never going to match up to what we want them to be. And yet we're so blinded by them, we keep recommitting to them. We never let ourselves see that they're the ones failing us. We become so enslaved, so ensnared, that we then can't detach ourselves from them. And there's an image that I just wanted to show you, um, much better than seeing myself. Um, this is quite a stark image. But for me, I think this sums up quite well what happens when we have money as an idol in our life. Because it blinds us. We don't see that it's not giving us what we need, and we don't see what it takes us from that is trusting in Jesus. We're blindfolded, and what we don't realize is who we're actually dancing with. But we're definitely not dancing with Jesus. You can take that down now. Um, at this point in the passage, it's quite easy to feel pretty depressed, pretty disheartened. Where do you go from here? Jesus has this conversation with this man, and the man goes away sad. But it doesn't seem to be a happy ending. And if we put ourselves into this passage, there's only really one person you can put yourself into the shoes of, and that is this man. It's easy to feel a little bit disheartened. And yet, when you look at the word of God, if you don't find the good news, you need to keep looking because every passage in the Bible, there is good news at the center of it. That's why it's written. That's what it's meant to reveal. It's meant to reveal truth which is meant to build us up, meant to take us closer to the love of Jesus. And so what we have to do is keep peeling back those layers until we find the, the truth and the goodness in the passage, what we're meant to see in it. And so often, that's about who you see as giving out the challenge, what you think is, who this God is. Um, just as a, an aside, just to give us a bit of light relief, I am... Um, this time last year, um, my children had chickenpox, and uh, we had basically had about two years in the run-up to this of regularly having holidays or really exciting events threatened by thinking that our children were about to get chickenpox. We were once on a Christian week away, and Raph came out in a rash, and people thought he had it, and um, he was told we were told we were going to have to leave this holiday. Amazingly, he didn't, so we got to stay. 
We were then meant to go um, away for New Year with friends, but they had a newborn baby. We'd just been in contact without knowing it with someone who was about to have chickenpox. So, of course, this family said, mm, I'm not sure you can come. The last day that they, the children might have come out in the chickenpox was the day we were meant to be arriving at these friends' houses. So we had to wait the three weeks, and amazingly, we got to go. But I was kind of done with thinking that we might be about to get chickenpox. So this time last year, a friend of mine rang me up and said, oh, our eldest has got chickenpox. And so I said, brilliant, we're there. I literally, I got in the car, I drove around, I, picked, I said, I'm not, I'm not taking any risks. They, get, they have to get it. They didn't want to hug each other because they, you know, they were like, he's got spots. So I was like, it's fine, you'll have a bath. So we ran a bath, <laughs> put the, the boy with the chickenpox in the bath, and I literally lined my three children up and made sure. And of course, they, it happened. And I thought, oh, you know, these things are staggered. So I'm going to have, you know, Raph will get it, then Ella will get it, then Otty will get it. No, 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 no. Saturday morning, about two weeks later, we wake up, Raph's got chicken box. Okay, good, that's what we wanted. Literally about four hours later, oh, Ella's got chicken box. Literally the next morning, oh, Otty's got chicken box. So I was at home with three children with chicken box. Now, friends of mine who are wired differently, I think potentially thought this was a little bit cruel of me, that I had gone and done this. Why would you do that? But hopefully you see the point here. Um, the point is, is that I love my children. And actually, I, know they, I knew they needed to get chicken pox. I knew that the majority of cases, it's not a harmful thing to get. And actually, I knew that it would stop ruining our fun if we just got it done. I actually did come out of love for myself, but also for the, for the children. <laughs> for the children. Now, tenuous link, but there's the light relief. In this story, how you read this story depends on how you see Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I know Jesus. I know he loves me, but when I read this story, I'm like, oh, I see, without even realizing it, a distant and a condemning God who's saying I've got it wrong. And that's where we go wrong. The key verse in this passage is verse 21. If you look, and it's just that first short bit, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus knows this man's heart. He's about to say to this man, you need to go and sell everything and then come and follow me. And he knows that this man isn't going to manage it. And yet, before he says all of that, he's looking at this man and he loves this man. He doesn't say it with words. It's just written on his face. He loves this man. Why does he love this man? There's two things I think that Jesus sees when he looks at this man. One, he sees this man on an earthly level. Jesus has become a human. Jesus stands before this rich, young ruler. Jesus himself is young. He was probably only 31 when he was having this conversation. Jesus has also known incredible wealth, more wealth than we can ever imagine. He's been in the heavenlies with his father. He knows what real riches look like. And he's leading. He's a leader of men. He is also, in some ways, a rich young ruler. And so you have a rich young ruler talking to a rich young ruler. And yet one of them, this man in the passage, who has actually very little riches, cannot bring himself to give them up. The other one, who has everything one could ever desire, knows too what this grief is like because he's anticipating the Garden of Gethsemane, the cross, when he has to make that choice to give absolutely everything up for us. 
someone was writing about this agony that Jesus goes through. And in Luke's gospel, it talks about how Jesus sweats blood at the thought of being separated from his father. It talks about how it's like the very core of his identity, the very core of his substance being ripped out of him. It's not just on a physical level, it's on a spiritual level that I don't think we can even fathom. But that that separation of the Father and Jesus was so agonizing to Jesus. So he sees this man's grief. He's not impartial. He's compassionate. He, he gets it and more. But the second thing is that he also sees that it is completely impossible for this man to ever be able to do what Jesus is asking of him in his own strength. He says later in verse 27 to the disciples, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Jesus looks at this man and he loves this man because he sees in this man the very reason why he's come to die on the cross. He's come to do that miracle on the cross and resurrection that will then enable this man to give up his little in order to follow Jesus. So you have your rich young ruler, Jesus, standing before this man, ready to give up his absolute all, ready to become poor having been rich, in order that this man who thinks he's rich but is actually poor can give up his wealth and become rich by following Jesus. That's what's going on in this passage Jesus looks at him and he loves him and he has compassion and he knows therefore why he is going to give up his all. And it's through these eyes that I think we're meant to see this passage. Yes, we might have idols. Yes, we might be attached to them. But hopefully when we see that Jesus looks at us with love and wants to give us so much more than these idols ever could, we begin to allow our hearts to soften that little bit. And I wanted to show you an image, which to me is the sort of the opposite of the one I showed you before. And this, to me, you might well know it, it's Charlie Mackesy, and it's the story of the prodigal son. But to me, this is what happens when we surrender to his grace. When we see Jesus in this story, when we see his love for us, and we say, okay, I recognize that potentially I do have an idol here, that I have in some form or other decided to worship money. And I'm going to let go of that, and I'm going to ask you to help me let go of that because of the miracle you've done for me. And I'm going to surrender to that grace that you offer me in order to be free. It's when we realize that he became poor so that we might become rich, that we're able to see through our idols and to see what he has done for us and what he offers us. On a practical note, um, quite often I think you can get to this point and think, well, that's all well and good. But actually, how on earth do I free myself from the, these idols? It's, it's okay when you're sitting in church and everyone's sort of thinking, okay, we can do this and you, know, you, you have a nice time of prayer. But when you get out there on a Monday and you're surrounded by the wealth, the affluence, potentially the worry that you have about money, what do you do then? And I've always gone with the you know, just, okay, fine, I'll change my attitudes, or okay, fine, I'm just going to change all of my actions and gone, you know, drastic. And of course, it lasts two days before you fall on your face. And Tim Keller, um, he speaks very well about this. And he says, just dealing with the attitudes and the actions is like just dealing with the, the leaves and the stems of a plant. 
that actually if you really want to be free from this love of money, from this lie that money gives us, what you've got to do is deal with the roots. And essentially what the roots are, they are your belief system, what you have allowed to become your belief system. When you worship money, what you're saying is, I trust in you. And if you're trusting in money, you're never going to be able to change your actions and your attitudes because fundamentally you will come back to money because you've chosen it to be your security. And so what you have to do is ask the Lord to come and deal with your trust. And he's not just going to rip out that trust of money, but what he does is he comes and reveals to you, to us, that actually we can trust in him. That actually it's when we choose him that we see that, okay, we might not get the fancy car, the bigger house, etc., etc., but we see that the riches he gives us are worth so much more that we are able to transfer our trust into him. I find that I have this on an everyday basis. So we, we live in Brixton, our children are at um, Macaulay, and so we're surrounded by all different kinds of wealth. And I am a natural warrior. So the way that my sort of, I guess, idol of money would show itself is through worry, because I'll panic about something to do with what I'm providing for my children. And my answer, because I see this as what the world gives me as the answer, is money. And it's one of those things that, for me, is actually, it's on a, on a daily basis, can, can really get deep in, because I'm so, I'm, I find it easy to worry, and these things matter to me, and it's the future, and it's unknown. And I have, I have learned, and it's a daily thing, but to literally say to Jesus, and it often weirdly happens in the car on the way to school or on the way back, to say to Jesus, remind me of your riches. Remind me of why actually I can trust in you. Remind me of why the gospel is of so much more value to give to my children than any of these other things that I might be worrying about. And the amazing thing is, is when, that, when you say that prayer, I don't find myself then going, okay, now I'm going to believe it. But I find, is that, I find that this happens. That again, Jesus comes, and he's that man who loves me, and he reminds me, of the gospel. He reminds me of my experience of what it is to know Jesus and that actually that is of the greatest wealth. It means more than anything that money could buy me. But it's that constant attending to the roots, making sure that they are rooted in Jesus and trusting Jesus. And that is how we manage to not fall prey or to become free of this idol, this promise, this lie that we sometimes fall prey to in money. Now, I don't know where you're at. We will all be at different places. Some of you are probably thinking, oh, I just can't wait for this to finish. I don't want to listen about money. I don't like the challenge. It's not relevant. Some of you might be thinking, I've heard this so many times before and nothing ever changes. Some of you might be thinking, do you know what? Yes, and actually, I really want to deal with this today. Wherever you're at, um, I would love us just to have a time to respond. And all I would ask of you is just to remember, that, just to read that first little bit in verse 21, that Jesus looks at you and he loves you. Because often that's the key, that's the starting point to whatever it is that God is wanting to reveal to you. So we're going to stand and I'm going to ask um, the band to come back and we're just going to sing a song that is one of my all-time favorites because the words to me sum up where I want my heart to be. Um, 
And so you don't have to sing it, or you can sing it, but as we sing it, I would love you just to have that, that verse in your head that Jesus looks at us and he loves us.